It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. My guest this week is Professor Rasmus Nielsen. Rasmus is the director of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford University. He's a busy man, so this episode rattles through some fairly complex questions at breakneck speed. But listen out for a debunking of some of this podcast's favourite pet theories around polarisation and fragmentation. We talk about how newspapers and social media platforms should deal with outright lies. And I ask whether we should expect more success from politicians who look to cut out the media when they try to reach the public. Rasmus, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm I'm going to kick off in a minute with a couple of quick fire questions, but I know you're just back from a break, and I noticed because you're usually a, a prolific and um, very interesting tweeter uh, that you take a Twitter break when you're away. Is that a total digital detox or just off social media? No, I only mo- mostly go off email and Twitter. Um, I use sort of Facebook and and I read news and, and other things on on devices when I'm on a break. A true news junkie in that case, in a sense. Um, so I wanted to ask you really quickly some quick fire questions. Um, the first of which was I noticed you uh, tweeting the other day about some of the kind of regular myths that are assumed truths in conversations around uh, media consumption in the UK, and there were three of them. So I was going to a- ask you about all three and ask you to. To kind of sum up really quickly in a sentence or two why people make the wrong assumptions about these issues. Um, the first of which is uh, the existence of filter bubbles in uh, online media consumption. Well, um, I mean, the assumption there is that the way that algorithmic systems work will lead people to a narrower diet of news that only confirms their pre-existing beliefs. And in fact, research shows that for most people, the opposite is the case, that uh, algorithms drive incidental exposure to a slightly larger and slightly more diverse uh, range of different sources of news. I think the reason that um, many in the sort of elite and the journalistic class who care about these things and discuss them quite avidly often on Twitter um, often get this wrong. It's sort of twofold. One is that it's very plausible. Uh, it, it could be the case that these systems might work that way, and we can think of reasons why the companies behind them uh, might operate them in that way for, for self-interested reasons. Um, only they don't. Um, they have self-interested reasons that mean that they build in serendipity uh, because that's a good way to create a better user experience, engage users more, and thus make more money from advertising and collect more data. So it could be the case. It just isn't for most people. And the second reason I think a lot of uh, people in the elite get this uh question of filter bubbles wrong is that they often extrapolate from their own personal experience. Um, And quite a lot of people in the elite are 
highly, highly engaged news users and very, very partisan. Um, and they tend to sort of see a lot of stuff that reflects that. And what they often forget is that most people are not like that. Most people have pretty limited uh, news repertoires and it's almost impossible that companies like Facebook and Google would only present them with more news of the one or two or maybe three different sources that people use already. So we don't live in some sort of pluralistic heaven uh, where everyone is consuming everything all the time. It's simply the case that when it comes to these algorithmic systems that they expose people to slightly more and slightly more diverse news than they seek out of their own volition. And uh, something I've been guilty of, and anybody who listens to Government versus the Robots regularly will know, um, is talking about the fragmentation of media and kind of fragmentation of actually associated fragmentation of our own identities. Um, but you've also used, I think you also wrote fragmentation, nah. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's the kind of thing that is a plausible assumption. You know, in many societies, um, you know, diversity and differences and disagreement uh, are becoming both more visible and also in some cases more pronounced. And the sort of the veneer of consensus and commonality that were generated by sort of universally used mass media in the past, you know, everyone watched the BBC or everyone watched ITV, therefore we all agree, which of course was complete sham as a way of thinking about this stuff. It just meant there was the only thing that people could watch. Um, you know, the veneer, that veneer has been sort of scraped away and now people use many more different sources. Um, the reason that the argument about fragmentation specifically isn't, uh, isn't a very convincing interpretation of what happens is that most of us use a combination of a few quite widely shared and quite uh, often overlapping sources and then many, many different niche sources that reflect our very different identities and aspirations and values. So instead of a world in which you might think, you know, there are some people who are the mainstream and some people who are sort of the niche nerds, the truth of the matter is that most of us are both mainstream and niche nerds um, and rely on a few sort of quite widely shared uh, sources of news and then a, a subset of other things that reflect our values and interests uh, more. So this is not quite fragmentation, but more a, a sort of a situation where people have duplicating and overlapping different sources of news. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't fragmentation and polarization in society. Uh, you know, people disagree very vigorously about many things, but that's not the same as the media being fragmented. Incidentally, that sounds almost like like diversification, but not fragmentation, because because that that ma that those mainstream sources which people have already kind of hold the glue together that I think people sometimes assume is disappearing. Um, the third is screen time, and it's not proven that excessive screen time is bad for you. But I wanted to kind of add to that slightly and ask whether you would subscribe to the idea that I've mentioned a few times on here that. Ad tech has driven driven the speed with which established media organisations have found themselves in trouble, um, and that the attention economy is a real thing rather than just a buzzword. I mean, I think those are the very different issues. But I mean, I would definitely agree with the second uh, part of this. I mean, there is no question that um, the the traditional twentieth century business of news has been ex completely fundamentally disrupted by the move to digital and the success of ad tech and large platform companies in offering advertisers much cheaper, much more targeted and much wider reach advertising than publishers have. I mean, it's an absolutely fundamental disruption. And the very real risk here is that professional journalism become collateral damage of a structural development in the media environment and the, and the media economy that has little to do with journalism itself, but is more about a wider change uh, in the media environment. I mean, I think that is absolutely accurate and, and is a defining issue uh, in many societies, if not all societies across the world. 
I think the question of whether screen time is bad for people is substantially very, very different from that. Um, and I think there that I'm relying on research by many others like Amy Orban um, and Sonia Livingstone and, and others who would say that, you know, the screen time is just such a poor and general measure of things that might be good or bad for people from a psychological or personal point of view. And it doesn't really tell us anything meaningful. I mean, the things that matter is what people do with screens, just as, you know, eating food is not bad for you, but eating some kinds of food is bad for you um, and eating some kinds of, bad, of food is bad for some people. So I think screen time is just a very poor measure of things that might be problematic online. And frankly, the discussion around uh, screen time is uh, uncannily similar to the moral panics that have surrounded every new media technology in our history. Uh, you know, from the worries that, you know, young women would be led astray by reading novels that we now consider classics and, and force young women to read, um, you know, over worries that, you know, the, the unwashed mop would be, you know, stirred to political action by reading newspapers that we now consider, you know, pillars of popular democracy to worries over radio and worries over television uh, when they emerged. I mean, some of this is about, you know, elites who are afraid of the unknown and elites who condescend on the popularity of media forms that they themselves have a conflicted and relationship with, even though they use them avidly, but they feel sort of slightly filthy while doing so, um, for reasons that I don't think we need to sort of delve into here. I'm going to ask you in a second about the uh, digital news report. Um, but just before I do, in what you were saying there, something jumped out at me when thinking about misinformation and disinformation, which is something we've been doing a lot in this series of Government versus the Robots. This technological shift, um, I've been saying with misinformation and disinformation, and people who are thinking, um, particularly in work at the Digital Societies team at the Overseas Development Institute, about how to tackle some of the real-world harms that come from misinformation and disinformation, I've been increasingly saying that I think you have to step back and look at the context and the evolution of the kind of digital information ecosystem and different digital information ecosystems to be able to get to the root of misinformation and disinformation problems. And, and that actually, often we kind of just see the creation of the internet. Um, we, we've seen waves of misinformation and disinformation in line with the creation of new technologies for communication. Um, is that is that right? Is that the case that we do often see when there are new mediums um, that we see misinformation and disinformation increase? I mean, I think, uh, I think, first of all, let's stress the outset here. There are very real misinformation and disinformation problems. And some of them are associated with, enabled by, or even amplified by some forms of digital media, including the business of some of the large platform companies, at least some of the time. The problems are real. They're very different in different societies, and they impact different groups uh, very differently. Now, I think Early on in the development of any kind of sort of large uh, communication system, I think the first thing that often happens is that lots of people with strong opinions and little evidence make sort of grand generalizations about what the societal impacts of this will be. And then, you know, boring empiricists like myself come along, actually study things and collect evidence and data. And then we normally come to the conclusion that it's less dramatic like that and that it varies a lot in different countries and different societies. Um, so the same way that radio didn't lead to fascism and communism everywhere, um, but was part and parcel of the rise of fascism in some contexts, uh, you know, the rise of the Internet and digital media and the platform companies has not led to the same outcomes in, in lots of different societies, even as they clearly are part and parcel of some of these problems of misinformation and disinformation around the world. Um, so, I mean, I, I, it's it's always sort of frustrating, you know, and it's sort of the most boring thing an academic can say is that things are more complicated than that. But sometimes things really are more complicated than that. And I, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the patience for that kind of, of, of complexity whenever we deal with any large public issue um, that requires a sort of societal response. 
we got to get the problem right. Otherwise, our responses will be at best ineffective and at worst counterproductive. This applies to COVID. This applies to you know inequality or racism or any other social problem that we confront. The same applies to misinformation and disinformation. It might be very satisfying to sort of advance a very simple and moralizing narrative, you know, out of Lord of the Rings, you know, evil things, good things, you know, uh, misinformation is spread by these technologies, end of story, ban them or break them up or screens are bad for children. But the world isn't like that. We don't live in Lord of the Rings. Um, and if we don't get these problems right analytically, there is an opportunity cost because we are pissing away an opportunity to actually address them effectively by being ignorant. Um, and I, it's shudder, I shudder at the thought of what public health policy or infrastructure or any other kind of public policy would look like if it was based on such a thin evidence base um, as, as what much of the sort of public and elite discussion around these issues are. I mean, we need to get the stuff right. Otherwise, we won't be able to address the problem, the very real problems that exist. I guess there's a sort of inevitability to the lacking evidence base when things are moving as fast as they have done in the digital space over the last few years. But I was going to ask you to set out the main messages from the digital news report. But in the interest of time, instead of doing that, I will tell everybody listening, it's a really rich report. Um, I shouldn't even condense it down to a few key messages because there's there's a multitude of interesting angles and messages and, and information in there. So read the digital news report from the Reuters School of Journalism. I want to pick up on two points that I noticed um, around it, and they they follow on from this kind of geographic variation in different places of of both misinformation and disinformation problems. Um, And one was uh, the variation in country-by-country results on whether citizens felt that news organisations should report when a politician lies and give prominence to the lie. And when I was looking at the stats for that, in some countries, um, only 20% of people thought that uh, you shouldn't give any prominence to the lie. And in other countries, 40% of people thought, sorry, thought you should give prominence to the lie. And in others, it was 40. So you've got twi- in some countries, twice as many people feel it's okay for or, or advisable for news organisations to give prominence when politicians lie. What understanding, if any, do you have of why that country by country variation exists? Um, I mean, I think it's a powerful illustration of sort of two basic points. One is that, again, you know, we can see the same problems play out in very different ways across different societies and the public will perceive them very differently. I think another part of this is that there is a very clear, you know, recognition in much of the public. And we have documented this extensively in, in, in years of research by now that a lot of the problems we face around the most consequential forms of misinformation have to do with powerful people who lie or try to mislead the public. And that there are sort of very real questions about how, as a society, we deal with the, you know, historical iron law that some elites will sometimes lie and and try to mislead people. I think there are, you know, what we research in this year's digital news report around that are sort of two sides of this. One is how should editorial organizations deal with this? And the other one is how should, you know, deal with with sort of misleading or, or false statements by major politicians. The other one is how should platform companies deal with potentially false advertising? And I, I think the differences here are moderately interesting in that there are, as you say, you know, some differences from country to country around advertising. They're more clear than around editorial in that, you know, countries like the UK, but also the Nordic countries and many countries in Europe who have a long tradition of severely restricting political advertising and sometimes banning it more or less altogether, at least from television, um, you know, have a much greater appetite for, you know, strong restrictions on potentially false political advertising on technology companies. But I think the bigger point here really is the sort of the commonality in this particular case, which is that um, the majority of our respondents across the countries that we look at, on balance, you know, have confidence in their own ability to handle 
potentially misleading statements, provided they're reported by independent news organizations who can contextualize and um, you know present them in in a way with uh, with context and and the like. And they have sort of confidence in their own ability to deal with this, and indeed with the wider public's ability to deal with it. What they don't like in most countries, and of course this doesn't mean this is always the right policy, but I think it is important to understand how the public thinks about this. What they don't like is the idea that politicians with enough money in their pocket can buy the right to lie to them unfiltered via digital advertising. This this is something that there is great, great skepticism for and great appetite for private companies to take on much greater responsibility in restricting potentially false and misleading political advertising. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The other thing that I wanted to ask about the, the report, or actually while you were talking there, Rasmus, I was thinking about, you said there's an iron law that in some countries, elites will always look to, to lie or mislead in order to, to gain or regain power, I guess, or hold on to power. And it's increasingly feeling to me like there's another iron law, which is that communications professionals uh, will always look to make the best of the available information to make the strongest possible argument to persuade people of something. Um, and I, I wonder, and I, it's a slight divert for the conversation, where, if at all, do you see a distinction between really smart political or, or news communication away from journalism and misinformation? Because the, the, the two definitely blur into each other at times. And I think the current kind of information ecosystem encourages that blurring because there are political rewards to it. Um, do you think it's possible to separate the two entirely? Well, I mean, I think, Jonathan, I think you hit on what is uh, one of the core problems uh, that we face in dealing with problems of misinformation and disinformation, which is that while there is a small subset of human communication where you can have near universal agreement that something is untrue or even false and fabricated and it can thus be sort of in a near objective and, and nearly universally consensual way be identified as, as misinformation and disinformation, there is a much, much larger gray zone shading from sort of very dark gray to sort of just sort of business as usual political debate where we're talking about omission, slight mischaracterization, preferred framings, 
dodging questions and the like, or things that are not about factuality, but about um, hate speech or incitement uh, or various ways of trying to uh, move from one kind of political debate focused on matters of factuality to another kind that is more about, you know, whether the other side, whoever the other side is, is sort of intrinsically evil and bad for you and is a threat to everything you hold dear. Um, and I think this is sort of not an accident that in discussions of misinformation and disinformation, despite sort of four years of, you know, advocacy organizations and researchers like myself arguing that in democratic societies, we would presumably want democratically elected officials, politicians to make decisions about, you know, what constitutes the framework for acceptable political debate uh, and, and thus define, for example, problems of misinformation, disinformation, the recognition in the political class that this is not a simple thing to do and that depending on where you draw the line, you might end up either with something that is sort of so sort of restrictive as to not really meaningfully address some of the problems that we have, but being very easy to defend and justify, or something that is so restrictive that it would have a very real chilling effect on political debate and draw attention to the fact that, you know, a lot of political debate, as you suggest, is – you know, not the preferred form of discourse for sort of philosophers and scientists and not sort of strictly supported in a factual manner on a sort of sentence by sentence base. So I think you sort of hit on a gray zone that is a large part of news and opinion and particularly opinion material and certainly a large part of political debate that isn't simply something we can divide into sort of true and false and do away with the false stuff or at least the bad false stuff. If we define misinformation as, for example, the European Union has as something that is false or misleading and deliberately spread either for economic or political gain and potentially harmful, then we're dealing with three incredibly complicated cosmic questions of factuality or accuracy, veracity, of intentionality. Why are people saying or doing the kinds of things that they're doing, as well as consequence? Like, what is the impact of this stuff? And it stands to reason that we cannot settle these things in a simple in, in a simple way. This is incredibly complicated material. Now, I want to really, really stress that complication is not an excuse for inaction. And I think there are many things, and I've you know, myself been involved in various efforts to, to suggest some of the options in this space that could be done should elected officials decide that they see these as, as desirable to increase transparency of the online environment, to, you know, regulate uh, online political advertising, to promote independent news media and independent fact checkers and others that can help citizens navigate the situation and create a more resilient public sphere where people can be exposed to misinformation but not affected by it because they have access to other sources of information uh, that they can rely upon. There are many things that can be done, and there are many problems here that in particular technology companies uh, have, have to answer for. But recognizing that these problems exist and are real is not the same as saying they're simple. And I think we're shooting ourselves in the foot if we pretend that complex problems are simple. And I think we're going to end up with either no in interventions at all or interventions that risk being counterproductive and even harmful. And that doesn't perhaps augur well for some of the steps being taken by some of the major social media platforms in recent months. It's interesting you mentioned the kind of lack of political will at times to define, and understandable, I think, in, at least in a philosophical sense, lack of political will to define the boundaries of misinformation and disinformation. But also I, I'm, I'm kind of struck by the fact that um, often the people in power have the best, if not control, positioning within the narrative of any kind of national discourse, or at least my UK perspective would suggest that. And therefore, it's almost always going to feel counterproductive to somebody in power to make changes which might reshape or, or redraw the boundaries within that which that narrative is formed. But my question actually for you is around... Um, We've touched very briefly on the weakening of independent media and media organizations and kind of the dissolution of the old business models. 
I've noticed, and this is a very subjective opinion of my own, um, that it feels like some people in power in certain countries, um, some it's always been the case, some it doesn't, it's not perhaps not always been the case, don't feel the, the, feel the fear of the accountability that the media can provide as much these days. So I would probably go so far as to suggest, and you don't need to comment on this in response, that, for example, when Dominic Cummings went up to Barnard Castle, he knew that ultimately there was no accountability around that, no matter what the British public felt. Um, And I wonder if you would agree that there is potentially a link between the um, weakening of media organisations and their funding um, and what feels like a lack of fear on the part of politicians as to the power of the media. I mean, I think just to sort of resurface your original point in your uh, in your question, you know, anyone with uh, who's supposed to spend any time trying to understand sort of political history or, or for that matter, political science, I think will not be surprised to find that winners of elections are rarely the people who are most keen to change the ways in which elections are run or regulated. This, I think, is, is unsurprising, but worth keeping in mind um, and may help us understand the predicament that we're in and the inaction that we see in many places. Um, more broadly, I mean, I think there is no question that with, you know, fewer editorial resources and perhaps more importantly, a combination of often less of a mass audience and more other ways in which to communicate with the public or the public to seek information, that the power of any one news organization to really sort of empty chair a politician or a political actor or sort of single handedly sort of hold them to account is somewhat diminished. I would say we should not confuse this with news media not being able to hold power to account and expose, um, you know, the actions of powerful people. And we should remember that the sort of Scooby-Doo theory of accountability, you know, where we expose the villain at the end of the episode and then he or she is held to account immediately was never the way in which journalism worked. I mean, even Watergate, the sort of the poster child, this kind of thing, you know, the majority of American journalism didn't even cover it for a very long time. And accountability relied on courts and Congress as much as on the news media, ultimately. So these things, I think, never simple. And I think we should really understand that news media play an incredibly important role, uh, even in their somewhat diminished state, in, in really helping the public understand what's going on and holding power to account. Now, how effective that is, of course, is, is situational. And in a situation where, say, a governing party, for the sake of argument, has won a landslide election uh, victory and is, you know, for the sake of argument, four, four or five years away from the next election, of course, in that moment, they're much less exposed to any kind of criticism, whether from the news media or from anyone else. Um, and can make different kinds of choices than they can, say, six months before an election if, for example, the polls were, you know, showed them neck and neck with the opposition. So some of this, I think, is contextual. And I think we will find in every country that uh, in situations where elections are soon and uh, polls suggest that elections will be close uh, fought, then news media, even if they are somewhat diminished, are incredibly important and politicians will have to take them into account and and think about what independent scrutiny and watchdogs mean for, for how they can carry themselves in power. Absolutely. Although I think it's in, it will be interesting to watch as well the, um, the the development of politicians who produce their own high production value media output, um, as if it is produced. You know, it, it looks and feels like it's produced by independent media. But absolutely, and in some ways, this is a you know a, a digitally powered resurgence of of the origins of much campaigning practice as well as, of course, much of journalism, where the separation between editorial and politics, you know, is, is a sort of a is is from the last centuries, not from the origins of journalism. Um, and I think there is no question that, you know, uh, those campaigns who have money or, you know, very motivated networks of activists have many 
new ways of communicating that circumvent uh, news media gatekeepers um, and reach people in different ways. What I would say is that those politicians, there are important differences in terms of electoral systems, whether things are sort of majoritarian or not. But, you know, in close fought elections and in particular in countries with sort of multi-party systems, those who want to govern rather than simply preach to the choir, those who want to win majorities or either in parliament or in the electoral vote, cannot only preach the choir through their own channels, and they will be reliant in part on the ability to reach people who don't in advance agree with them and won't in advance vote with them. And there, in particular, I think news media uh, are still incredibly important. I wanted to ask, you've used the phrase recently um, of, of creative destruction within democracy, and you've been writing about institutions, I think specifically news institutions, although some of the messages that you, you sort of trailed on Twitter ahead of the publication of the chapter in the book uh, felt like they were relevant to other institutions. Why did you pick upon the phrase um, creative destruction? And what sort of institutions do you think will be able to survive this creative destruction? I mean, thinking about the news specifically, both from the point of view of the industry itself, but also more importantly, from the point of view of individual members of the public, I think creative destruction is a useful way of avoiding the sort of the polarizing tendencies of either have sort of the naive digital optimism of, you know, Arab Spring, Twitter revolution, blah, 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 blah. Uh, or for that matter, the sort of the darker dystopian, you know, tone that features quite prominently in, in some discussions right now and, and try to capture a situation in which, um, you know, some things are becoming measurably better for a lot of people. People and and that that their experience of that of things becoming better isn't is part of what drives this change. People are opting you know with their attention, they're voting with their feet uh, for for digital media, even as as a consequence of some of those perceived improvements, we're also seeing you know the spreads of sort of algorithmic forms of filtering and data collection that people don't understand very well necessarily, as well as you know very disruptive impact on some established institutions that were imperfect but very important for our democracies. So for the news industry specifically, I mean this is a absolutely you know, terrifying moment for for a lot of the industry because it's a existential threat to the historical business. And I think we're it's clear looking forward that the digital news business is a winner takes most business where a limited number of large, often upmarket uh, news organizations will do very well. Some of them even better than they did in the past, but many will struggle, and in particular, local ones will struggle. Um, so I think a lot of sort of premier brands will do quite well, even if the transition will be hard. And we see some of them already doing uh, very well. Indeed, you know, the New York Times famously have more journalists now than they ever had in their history. And they're not alone. Le Monde in, in France and Dagesnüter in Sweden are reporting, you know, similar trends towards sort of a virtuous circle where, you know, success begets more success. But that doesn't really help the local paper or, or the smaller uh, paper. So I think there is some real destruction there, uh, even as we also, have so, of course, see many creative things. We see, you know, Forms of journalism, uh, whether nonprofit and collaborative, or for that matter, done inside of established organizations, that frankly is better than anything we've ever seen and were unimaginable before the rise of digital media. The kinds of collaborations, the kind of data journalism, the kind of data visualization that we see are things that simply could not be done before digital media. And from the point of view of the public, while there are very real problems online, harassment, misinformation, and other issues that, that accompany digital media use, you know, the reason that we are moving towards a more digital media environment fundamentally is in large part about the fact that people are choosing it. It's not that they cannot read print newspapers or watch terrestrial television, it's that they choose not to, and in greater and greater numbers. And I would uh, encourage anyone who thinks that this isn't, at least in part, driven by public preference, to try to convince someone under 40 to you know, rely only on print and broadcast and give up digital media and convince this person that this is somehow better for her and better for him. I mean, you you have to be someone who did very well uh, for yourself in sort of 1990s journalism to believe that the 1990s was, you know, better for everyone rather than just better for you uh, as, a, as a sort of journalist. 
journalist and a, and a, and a news proprietor than the media environment that we have now with all the, the many different problems that, that accompany it. It would, uh, it would be interesting to know whether the success of those premium media brands is driven by domestic audiences or whether they're growing their international audiences because I think the sort of spatial nature of news and information is, is really interesting. Um, but I, I also am struck by the fact that some of the, 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 the styles of journalism that you're describing require doing things differently and something that um, I've talked about a bit on this show is the need for institutions to think differently about how they communicate because that is how they can build or, or gain trust and actually often you know your brand is really what you do it's not what you say um, and it's these different ways of performing journalism perhaps more interactive and perhaps more use of data the, the kind of the, the the relationship with the audience that I think in a lot of senses seems to be driving some of that success um, I don't know if you would agree with that um, and I also wanted to ask I mentioned trust there and I know that that's something that the the Reuters school is, is already looking at and I wanted to know um, what we know about why people trust institutions and what we don't know well, I mean, I think maybe if we can keep the trust question for for possible future conversation, and then focus, I think, on the on the way you think about the urgency of thinking about what professional practice looks like in a way that draws on time timeless values of journalism, commitment to factuality, and and to helping the public understand the world beyond their personal experience, but also embrace the idea of timeliness that you have to do different things differently at different points uh, in, in history. I mean, at every simplification uh, is an exaggeration, but one way to, to simplify and exaggerate is is to say that historically the problem that journalism tried to solve was an absence uh, of, of information and, and today uh, the problem that it could try to solve is an abundance uh, of information, much of it misinformation or disinformation. And of course this is fundamentally different. And while there are some situations in which a 400 word article with a stock photo is a good solution to a problem that people have, I think there are many problems that people have that are not effectively solved by another 400 word article with another stock photo. And, and I think this is a very fundamental change and, and and it's it's not easy to change what you do if you're part of a profession that does something that is really important and that you're very proud of and rightly so nonetheless it, it is I think incredibly urgent that journalists think about you know what is the way in which we create value for the public going forward all journalism exists in the context of its audience and its value rely in large part on the public's recognition of this as valuable and important for them for their concerns their identities the communities that they're a part of and I think journalism has a lot to offer but it has to engage with the actually existing public, reach people on the media where they are, and also be prepared to be proud of their history, but also change. And I'm glad to say that I think many, many journalists and many news organizations are embracing that vision of change, even though it's hard. And I think we are, while it is very difficult, and there are going to be a lot of losses and a lot of job losses and, and, and further closures of titles, also seeing some real success of news organizations and individual journalists doing incredibly important and impressive work. Rasmus, that's been a very rapid dance through some really interesting work that you and colleagues are doing. So thank you very much for taking the time to join us. That's great. Thanks, Jonathan. That's all from Government versus the Robots this week and potentially for a little while. There is a baby due in the Tanner household and I'm not sure when I'll have chance to get back into the virtual podcast studio. I'm definitely going to keep thinking and writing about these issues. So if you've enjoyed this series, please do stay in touch via the usual channels. And thank you so much for taking the time to listen and engage. My thanks to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of the show. And for now, stay safe. And perhaps most importantly, when it comes to disinformation and misinformation, stay alert. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.